Welcome to the Direct Examination Podcast. My name's Amber Fulmer. And I'm Dane Phillips. And I'm Joseph Bias. Again, before we get started tonight, we wanted to thank everyone for listening and for following us on social media. Without you paying attention and listening to our podcast, we wouldn't be doing this. So we hope you're both entertained and informed, and we hope that you really enjoy Joseph's candy thing, because he's looking at (laughs) me with this funky face from across the room. No, I was looking at you to say that we're proud to announce that we have increased our listenership every week. That is true. And we we've go had, up every week. And we've had the most increase over the past week. So for our new listeners, go back and listen to the old po- podcast. Most of them are pretty good. Um, they get better as you The can. one with all of us is obviously the best. And, the you know, Joseph is the candy is just the tag along. We'll let Dane tell you about our special episode today. Well, we do have a special episode for our listeners. This is our very first of many roundtable discussions with lawyers from around South Carolina. Uh, the lawyers we have from today are from Columbia and Lexington. Uh, really, today we're going to focus on lawyers who are in the trenches defending the rights of the accused. Um, essentially, they're there, front lines, protecting people who are accused of crimes. So, yes, criminal defense attorneys. We have three attorneys on our panel today. They're ranging from all different backgrounds. First, I'd like to introduce... J.L. Gilreath, she's a public defender in Lexington County, has been for the last five years. We have Tyler Bailey, who is a solo practitioner, good old solo attorney from Columbia, the man that's got to wear every hat. (laughs) And he can talk about that as well in life of being a criminal defense attorney. And last but not least, former prosecutor turned good guy, Joe Leventus. (laughs) Needs no introduction, I'm sure. Can you tell Dave wrote these intros? <laughs> Prosecute turn good guy. Without a doubt. So one of the things, uh, basically, I hope, again, we're going to hopefully do a lot more roundtables, but since this is kind of our criminal law, criminal practice, criminal defense uh, table, one of the things I'm going to try to do is be a little bit of a moderator and let y'all kind of take the reins. One of the first things I wanted to bring up is a kind of a national issue that uh, is really being thrown around out there, and it's bond bail reform. Uh, we can start with ladies first and kind of get your point of view, which is a lot different as a public defender than it is as a private attorney because as a former public defender, I, did, I didn't have, you know, the issues I have as a, or had as a public defender are much different than I have as a private attorney. So as far as bond and bail reform, uh, what are some of the biggest key points that you'd like our listeners to know. I, I guess first that, you know, bail and bond is something that's going to affect everyone who gets arrested. That's that's sort of the first step in the process. You're going to go before a judge. A bond is going to be set. Um, a lot of times I think people don't realize that the law actually says by statute that the presumption is you're supposed to be out just on your promise to come back to court. And a judge is supposed to make very specific findings that either you're an unreasonable danger to the community or your promise is not enough to assure that you'll appear. But usually that's not actually done. Nine times out of ten, people are having to pay, and they're usually having to pay bondsmen because the amount of bonds that are being set are usually in the tens of thousands of dollars. Depending on what you're charged with, it can go up into six figures and higher, and it can even be denied. So everybody that I represent in that they they have all been deemed indigent, usually by that same bond court judge, are given bonds a lot of times that they cannot afford to make. So it's going to influence everything that happens, the decisions they make, the decisions I make. And a lot of times you get people who are so worried about just getting out, getting back to their family, not losing their job, not losing custody of their children. It turns into just let me plead as soon as possible. 
because they can't afford to make bond. What are some different ways that you've seen judges kind of address that? I, I guess if you kind of had your way, and we'll get to Tyler and Joe in a second, but do you believe the most fair, you know, there have been some issues with judges letting folks out on bond that maybe they shouldn't be? What What's the solution? How do we get to a, a fair point for the indigent and for the uh, people who, um, you know, are facing these issues? The first thing I would say is for judges to actually make those findings. Usually the, the bond forms that I get, it's already a pre-check box that just says nature and circumstances of the offense. They don't make these specific findings that this individual person is an actual danger to the community, much less an unreasonable danger to the community. Um, they don't take into account this person's ability to pay. Um, they don't look at has this person ever missed court before or ever not shown up? Have they ever even been arrested before? So you get people who have been charged with very low level offenses, possession of marijuana or possession of, you know, whatever kind of drug or, or petty larceny or just about anything. And you're going to have a, a bond that's set. I've heard that a lot of other jurisdictions around the country have started sort of experimenting with almost like a sort of a pretrial probation supervision program where you don't have to pay to get out, but you're still checking in. They're looking to see, do you have other needs? If you've got a drug charge, do you have a drug problem? Do you need substance abuse counseling? Um, if transportation is your issue, and for most of my clients, that is the issue. Right. Um, once they out, are out on bond, they have to come to appearances, usually at least once a month. And for a lot of people, transportation is an issue. And assuming they even have a driver's license, most of them don't have cars. Failing to come to court is going to result in a bench warrant and bond being revoked and things like that. So I think if judges would sort of take into account some of these things and we would look at offering services, offering ways for people to get transportation, ways for people to get services while they're out on bond and start addressing some of the issues there, you're going to assure that they're going to come to court because I think they're going to see the system more as helping them. And you're already going to be addressing these issues on the front end and Again, transportation is usually one of the absolute biggest issues, and I think judges know that, but I don't think that setting these bonds that people can't afford is the way to address that. Right. And they're presumed innocent. Also that. There's also <laughs> that. <laughs> they, they are innocent at Supposedly. This point. Tyler, what about you? As far as this bond issue, now, just to back up slightly, so J.L., who we just heard from, is a public defender in Lexington County, and you've been at that office for how long? As I interrupt you. Just a little over five years. Okay. Um, Tyler, you are a solo practitioner. Do you do anything else other than criminal or are you? Yeah, I have a pretty diverse practice. I do mainly <laughs> criminal defense, personal injury work, and also do workers' compensation and other civil lit litigation all throughout the state. But for purposes today, I do a lot of criminal defense um, from Greenville all the way to Aiken County to um, Berkeley County. So I've seen judges rule on bond issues different. In different counties, Richmond County here, it, it appears to be different from the count different counties that you go to. What jail was saying, you know, they're supposed to make their decision based off the of their likelihood to uh, flee danger to society. Um, what I see a lot of times is bail or bond is set based off the severity of the, of the crime that they are presumed innocent of. So you can have somebody who commits a crime or is accused of committing a crime with another person, and technically their bond is actually being factored by their co-defendant's bond. And so you can have three co-defendants, one person, all 
accused of, let's say, attempted murder or something like right. that. Well, all those people are going to have very high bonds that are going to be mm-hmm. set, even if one person was the actual uh, person who more than likely would have committed the crime, um, and he's willing to, you know, take a stand for that. Everybody's going to get a high bond. And they, don't, they can't afford it. So, Jail, you, you want to jo- join in? I, I just I was going to ask a question. Obviously, being a public defender in exclusively in Lexington, and representing primary, you know, indigent um, defendants. One of the things I've noticed, a lot of charges have, they're sort of a going rate, you know, possession of meth is usually going to be a $5,000 bond. I mean, there's, there's tendencies to set the same bond and that, and, and there's the, like I said, there's the automatic box checked off the nature and circumstances of the offense. I'm just curious with you guys being private attorneys in other counties, do you see it being that way? Kind of the same way where you have this presumption that, oh, a possession of this drug is going to automatically carry this bond or a, I don't know, a burglary third degree is automatically going to be a $20,000 bond or things like that? No, I, I, that's one thing I would like to ask for is a little bit more consistency um, statewide and countywide. I mean, honestly, it kind of depends on which judge you get in front of um, for the bond amount. and. I mean, if you know going in, you can prepare ahead of time. For a private attorney, most of the time, I like to be hired to turn the people in uh, prior to a bond ever being set right. so I can kind of get that prepared. And if I knew what was going, what we were going to get before we went in, maybe we could post a cash bond rather than get a bondsman. Maybe I could prevent someone from having to spend an extra night in jail. Um, but it's just that lack of consistency. Um that has really bugged me. And and that's not even within, I mean, obviously there's no uniformity throughout the state, but I mean, really, even within the county, sometimes you got a couple rogue uh, summary court judges that will throw on an incredibly high bond and just, they hope the cir- circuit court sorted out later through a reconsideration motion. Absolutely. Right. After they've spent three weeks in jail before you can get the motion in front of the circuit court. And I didn't mean to say, I mean, it's not that there, there are obviously exceptions in Lexington. It's not that there are always, but it's sort of, it almost seems like there's a presumption, okay, if you have this charge, it's going to be roughly this. Somebody might go rogue one way or the other, but that's just something I was curious that a lot of times we see it sort of pre-filled in. I was curious. Somebody was. should write all that stuff down, like at least so you can have like a guide for it. You know what I mean? Just, hey, here's the guide on this judge in this county, whatever else. There you go. Write it down so you can sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there well, we go. Make the <laughs> I'll go ahead and say it. There is some issues around the state where there have been accusations, Well, since we're talking about accused, where summary court judges pre-write the bond amount on the forms, which is inherently unconstitutional. Uh, and so that's also a problem that we're constantly dealing with and uh, having to get what we believe is a fair and just bond for the client. Uh, ultimately, especially when we're talking about what Tyler said, somebody, the dangerousness, it's not just danger to the community or a specific person, it's unreasonable danger. That's the one thing I try to highlight to the judges. The legislature in their infinite wisdom did add that word unreasonable. So it's an unreasonable danger. And kind of going to unreasonableness, let's talk about bench warrants and how they're used throughout the state. Uh, and the sometimes uh, lack of due process uh, that's afforded to criminal defendants. Explain uh, what a bench warrant is for those who... So the way I would explain a bench warrant is uh, you could say that a judge gives an order. He says, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. If you don't comply with X, Y, and Z, a judge could issue a bench warrant. 
and the bench warrant's essentially a piece of paper that says we can lock you up and hold you in jail uh, until either the judge says he's going to let you out or uh, I'm trying to think however layman term I could put it, but pretty much the judge has full discretion into whether, uh, since you violated his order, his instruction, uh, whether to allow you to get out. And part of the issue that comes up, we'll come back full circle to JL, uh, is an issue that I know she fought in Lexington, is skipping the rule to show cause process, which is a hearing that goes before a judge that essentially prevents the police, the prosecutors, from arresting someone without having their day in court versus a bench warrant being issued prematurely too soon so a person, uh, to essentially prevent a person from getting arrested without being heard. Uh, because obviously somebody throws an accusation out there. The most common example, the one that jail can go into, is somebody is accused of domestic violence. They have a no contact order. They're not supposed to contact the other person. The other person says, I've been getting contacted by this individual. And some places... Uh, the person just goes and gets picked up on a bench warrant. There is no due process hearing to defend themselves. And so they go and get arrested without ever having an opportunity to defend themselves. So I'd like for us to kind of walk through that and see kind of how we it's been addressed by our panel. Jail? Well, I've addressed it a lot. <laughs> I spent the better part of my career, my tenure at the public defender's office dealing with this. You appealed it to the either Court of Appeals or Supreme Court? Went all, went all the way up. They denied it, which, in fairness, it was because we had actually won it at the circuit court level, which meant we weren't considered an aggrieved party. I wanted the court, the appellate courts to hear it on the grounds that it's such a widespread problem because there are some exceptions where they can hear those things. But we had actually won it. The, the circuit court judge found that it was a due process violation, meaning it violated the person's constitutional rights to issue this bench warrant and just go pick someone up based on an ex parte or one person only, one side only talking to the judge and saying, hey, we think this person committed this violation of the conditions of their bond or committed this other infraction of some sort, so we want a warrant, and then getting that warrant, arresting them without having any kind of a hearing for them to be able to respond and explain or provide evidence to the contrary. And, and one of the other things with bench warrants, there's no bond. You get an arrest warrant, you're entitled to have a, a bond hearing of some sort so that you can at least have a chance to get out on bond. Bench warrants, you're there, you're stuck. There's no there's no bond. It's when the judge says you can get out. So one of the things I was fighting with these domestic violence ones was exactly that. There would be a, oh, he texted me, or oh, he showed up at my house last week. They'd go get this bench warrant, arrest the person with no no hearing, no other actual evidence being presented to the judge, just a detective saying, she told me this. So it's sort of hearsay upon hearsay sometimes, and the person doesn't get a chance to respond, and, and now they're locked up. And a lot of times how they would implement it is they'd wait till the person shows up for their court date, and they'd tell them to go sit in the box and then go lock mm -hmm. up, put handcuffs on them. Yep. Right. So that's also in violation of another statute. Yep. <laughs> you know, of using a lot of somebody coming to court to lock them up. Welcome to Lexington County, uh, Joe Venice. <laughs> Joe is... Gasping. <laughs> so, yeah, Joe's face is gonna. <laughs> we do things That's a, a little. Bit, <laughs> we did things a little bit differently in Richland County. We did because uh, you used to be a prosecutor, right? We uh, we did motions to revoke, and we had a hearing prior to um, prior to locking them up. If the of course if the bond was revoked, uh, you could change terms and terms and conditions of bond. Um, you could do a lot of different things, or judge could do a lot of different things, but uh, I mean, I believe there is actually a statute that 
allows for emergency revocations of bond that allows for a shorter period of notice, which kind of lends me to the idea that maybe that before, I mean, maybe this whole bench warrant thing is just flat out wrong and we were doing it the right way in Richland County. Um, I, I was arguing for them to do it that way. That was exactly my argument is just there should be a motion to revoke and a hearing. I mean, you were depriving somebody of rights and freedom. I mean, yeah. absolutely agree with you 100% on that. Nice to hear and a prosecutor I, say that. <laughs> I think that goes to what Jail was saying, how every county is different. And just practically speaking, from my client's standpoint, if they have uh, their bond revoked and they're in jail on a bench warrant, they want to get out of jail. Every day they're in there, they're demoralized more and more. So at that point, they hire a private attorney. private attorney has to go through their calendar to find the time to go visit them. You go visit him. He wants to get out of jail. The prosecutor now has the leverage. Right. Say, hey, Tyler, I can get you in for a hearing next week or, or Friday if he's going to plead to this. Or I'll check my calendar and see uh, when we can have a hearing so your motion <laughs> uh, to have the bench warrant vacated can be heard. You go tell your client that he's ready to get out of jail. Right. So even mm-hmm. though you have a defendable case, you have somebody who wants to get out of jail quicker and they're more likely to take a plea. And as my job as representing my clients, I can give them advice of what the case looks like. But they're more likely to say, hey, I'll go ahead and plead to that so I can just get out of jail and go home. Right, because they have their job. Right, or they lost their job. Already now because there were no, mm-hmm. no, no call, no show. The last right. time I had to deal with this issue was probably about three weeks ago. My client... He had like five, five or six follow-up appearances, and he showed up for jury duty, mm-hmm. doing his civic duty. He gets arrested for uh, missing one of his follow-up appearances. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> for showing up for jury duty. Right. Showing up for jury duty. I mean, meanwhile, <laughs> if, I, if I got called for jury duty, I'd be trying to get out of it. Somehow. Right. Exactly. Young guy, he's probably in his, uh, he's in his 20s, early 20s, African-American. I'm like, this is the person we want to show up for jury. This right. Is, in my experience, yeah. a lot of times people don't show up for jury duty. This guy's showing up, and he's going to jail for uh, missing his uh, sixth follow-up appearance and, three and years he, ago. And he's shown up to shown all up. those other prior yeah. appearances. Right. I mean, that's the point is. There's never been an issue. This gotcha game of coming every month until they finally can get you for one time when he was actually trying to do yeah. the right thing. Is it just taking that long? You said six followed to get on the trial docket. I know how backed up we can get in family court. <laughs> I know criminal cases can go a lot longer because we're under a 365 administrative deadline. Y'all don't have that. So. Uh, sometimes, I mean, Caleb, years. Joe could tell me. Three years is not unheard of. Well, Jay and, and I had a case that we need to have three this years. Our client was pod. Lasted three years. This podcast needs to be a video podcast just with Joe's face. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing a minute ago. He's just sitting there like looking aghast at things. In fact, we're going to put Joe's face on our Instagram page <laughs> and, and, and his various reactions. Like, reach around me, just to right. Get... I started my practice right out of law school, so back in 2014, one of my first cases, the first first month I was sworn in. It was a CDV case in Winsboro. Case is still pending now. Still hasn't been heard. Small town justice. The <laughs> yeah, wheels right. of justice move slow out there. I tried a case, uh, well, I was second seating a uh, drug trafficking case. And there was a big issue on the case, so we, of course, reduce it. Um, and guy ended up with probation. Of course, he was looking at a mandatory 25 years. But I looked in his file, and I saw that there were 37 appearance notices. Wow. wow. 37 <clears throat> over the course of four years. Now, time served. He made <laughs> yeah. every yeah. single yeah. one of those appearances. His signature was on them. I mean, 
the lack of judicial economy with having somebody come in for 37 different appearances to me was just stunning. It's unconscionable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think people, it seems a lot of times like solicitors don't take into account that these are people who are might lose their job if they keep coming in, you know, missing once a month because sometimes you sit there for hours and I've had people that that's that was the decision they had to make. Do I chance the bench warrant and try to come in later when I'm off work or right. guaranteed I'm going to lose my job, but I'm going to not get a bench warrant. Or you have somebody looking for a job and, you, and they have to explain, well, I was arrested. I'm mm-hmm. innocent, proven guilty. I have this lawyer. You can call him. But if you Google my name, you may see case pending in the 11th right. Judicial Circuit. Or and I think Lexington and Richland are a little bit different with bench warrants. From what I've heard of Very Lexington. Different. I think they're a lot bit different. <laughs> Lexington, and I heard we have a statewide podcast, so it's probably different across the state. It, yeah. it is different sure. everywhere. Uh, and one of the things that's very different, you want to talk about a dichotomy, is the appearance system between Richland and Lexington. So the way they handle appearances in just those two counties is much different compared to all the other counties that I've ever been to, especially if you go out to the twilight zone of what used to be known. It's better, so I don't want to totally call it because it's changed over time. But the you know the other part of the 11th Circuit of Edgefield, Saluda McCormick. I have they, people there, dang. They, <laughs> they, they would, no, no, no. And, and I wasn't. Ever's face turned the same color as her hair. I wasn't <laughs> talking about the people. Those are God's people. I'm talking Thank about you. how the prosecutors <laughs> would. So what I was specifically referring to was the fact that until just recently, I mean, not too long ago, it wasn't uncommon to have people sit up there all week. Mm-hmm. So they let them make them come back every day for a court term. So you'd show up on Monday and go, you know what? We're just not ready to get rid of you yet. Come back tomorrow. Guy would show up to the on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then they'd go, yeah, we're not going to try your case. Get out of here. And they'd have people sit there in the pews all week long. You think you still have a job after you've missed it for an entire week? No. No. Uh, they still do. It's it's better, but I went and filled in when we were happy. We had somebody who was leaving recently, and I filled in for them that week. And it wasn't every single person, but there were a number of them. That was the thing. It was well, we haven't decided on the offer yet, or, well, we forgot to notify the victim, or whatever, have them come back tomorrow, and then wouldn't get to it, back tomorrow, back tomorrow, and so it's it still happens. Every county is completely different. In Charleston, if you uh, make contact with the solicitor's office, file your notice of appearance, you could waive your first appearance, and they just notify you when... So I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually a test order that the Chief Justice has put out. It's a way to finally, many years later, address State versus Langford, where our our Supreme Court found that solicitor control of the docket was unconstitutional. But we haven't had really anything happen about that. In many places around the state, solicitors control the docket. So, Dane, talk, when you say solicitors control the docket, what do you mean? So, what I, what I mean is... See, that's what I'm here for, is just to break it down for uh, people like me. Thank you, Joseph. It's for solicitors not like Joe Lavinis, who would say, uh, I'm going to control when your motions are going to be heard, just right. as Tyler mm-hmm. said. Uh, if someone, if you've got a guy sitting in jail on a bench warrant and you need him to go before a judge, and he has your guy sitting there for over a month... The nature of the case changes a lot because this guy in a month has lost everything. So essentially, when solicitors control the docket, what we're saying is that the solicitor controls when every case is called. That's right. In in every county. Now, there are some judges, and I'm not going to name names, but the ones that I love, who say, I don't care about that. I'm going to call what I want to call when they're called. But those judges don't 
aren't necessarily aware of these things that Tyler, JL, and Joe are talking about because they're it are isn't brought to their attention. They can bring up and say, hey, we have the, I want to do please today, give me your please. I can do trials today, give me your trials. But, and they can even determine the order, but they can't necessarily say, oh, there's a guy who's calling Tyler um, who wants a hearing that, you know, we don't I, know what to do with. Right. But generally, I mean, the prosecutors are the ones that are putting together the motion list. So the judge right. is just hearing what they see on the list. Right. So, you know, the other issue would be that a prosecutor could prep a case for a trial and the defense attorney not know it and then mm -hmm. get hit 10 days before trial and say, guess what? In 10 days, you better be ready for trial because I've spent the last 90 days prepping up. We're ready to go. I'm, uh, I'm ready. So that's uh, kind of the uh, the card game that's played. Uh, and so taking away that, they have this test order that's in Charleston, or at least that's what I've been told, uh, where you you pretty much have gotten rid of the entire appearance system, because I do have a General Sessions case in Charleston, and it was nothing more than filing an appearance form that this person had a lawyer, and we don't have to go to court right. for those appearances. We don't have to waste not only the client's time, but our time, because it would just be me traveling down there to sign a piece of paper exactly. and turn around and come back. And so... Thankfully, I think hopefully out of this test order, we're going to get a lot of good uh, input, information, and, and hopefully through this uh, kind of evaluation, uh, a lot of good things come from it because hopefully it's going to be implemented statewide in the next, hopefully very soon for those listening. One thing I would just add to it, that for lay people who aren't part of the system like us over here, um, the defendant's life is on pause while they're accused of a crime. If you're a high school, if you're a senior in high school and you're accused of crime and the system takes so slow, that messes with your, uh, you try to go to college, try to go to the military. And I think the state as a whole needs to have a consensus. Things need to be more uniform. Mm -hmm. I would like to see every county uniform. Realistically, I, I'm not, I don't see how it could happen without the legislator making some serious um, overarching changes. But because every county is different, mm -hmm. because the solicitor's office controls the docket, Defense lawyers, we do what we can. We're defending. We, it's, it's the odds are stacked against the average person, especially if you're unrepresented. You have no control on the defense mm -hmm. side. Your job is to react. And, I mean, of course, my base being in prosecution, I like to have a little bit of control. So I would at least like to maintain some semblance of that um, throughout the course of an investigation when we have discovery dumps the last month and you already hired a private investigator. You've developed a theory of your case and a defense. And then all of a sudden at the very last minute, boom, your whole defense has been shattered by some piece of evidence that two years later miraculously shows up on your desk and I mean, you're in trouble. So why do it? Why be a criminal defense attorney? We got law students listening to, to right. us. Tell us, why be a defense, criminal defense term? I've heard uh, guilty uh, from a jury, and I've heard a not guilty <coughs> from a jury. And there is no better feeling than seeing the smile on someone's face and the happy and the joy when they hear not guilty. I mean, it is trumps any kind of money, trumps any feeling out there is just seeing their face and their reaction. So y'all are hearing this. Joe says... If you're not guilty, if you found not guilty, you don't have to pay him. That's what I heard, right? <laughs> <laughs> All he's in it for is that, yeah, that, that satisfaction. Tyler, you brought a smile to your face. Tyler, what about Major you? Day. Why do it? You know, may sound cliche, 
but I one society a lot of times judges people, and I think uh, criminal defense lawyers we are the I guess gatekeeper um, for a system that could railroad people. Um, everybody deserves the defense, no matter how heinous the crime they're accused of doing, no matter their race, their gender, their economic status. And um, it's a privilege to be able to represent somebody who's accused of doing something wrong. If the prosecutor's office does what they're supposed to, the defense lawyer does what they're supposed to do. Technically, you should find justice somewhere in the middle. And that's what we're all searched for. The prosecutor's supposed to search for it. The defense lawyers were supposed to do the same thing. And there's no better feeling and no... You, there's no client that's more appreciative than somebody you help through a difficult time like a criminal case. I've represented people in civil cases, <laughs> uh, gotten good verdicts or settlements for them. Thank you, Tyler. You know, mm-hmm. moving on with my life. You, you help somebody who's been arrested, had a bond hearing, million appearances, um, mm-hmm. lost mm-hmm. a lot, and they're found in- innocent or there's a plea deal that works out for them. That's your man for the rest of your life or mm-hmm. woman. Money's one thing, but freedom, yes. yes, freedom's where it's at. Exactly what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Well, y'all, since we are nearing the end of the podcast, and I hate this because it's been such a good <laughs> conversation, we have a section called the cross-examination. So we're going to ask each of you a question, but I'm actually just going to ask one question. Y'all can all three yeah. answer it. And I'm and gonna before st- we go, oh. we cut off while she was. Oh, that's true. We did. We got, I'm we, sorry, Jay. She's got to have her. She's got to have her moment in the sun. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Why? Yeah, and why be a public defender of all things? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the things I I would say I agree with everything that um that they that they said as far as the satisfaction of getting a not guilty. Those are not super common. Um, but, but you've had them. I've had them. I have had them. As a matter of fact, it took me a while to not have one. Look at you. I'm probably jinxing <laughs> myself now. <laughs> we had we had one together. <laughs> we did. Um, but I would agree with everything that they said. But also, I always kind of saw it as, especially as a public defender, you are you're helping people that are the the sort of abandoned, the ones that that nobody else are looking at, nobody else is helping. Everyone has kind of written off and. Sometimes you can take someone like that who's kind of hit rock bottom, they're desperate, and you can turn them around. You can find programs and services and things that can help them, whether they're guilty or not guilty, and help them kind of turn around and go in a different direction and start kind of moving up. I do. I also do a lot of work because I speak some Spanish. I do a lot of work with um, immigrants and um, people who don't speak English, and so there's a lot there too that you know there's people that yes that's what yeah, that's what amber that's and my I girl three year finally yes. got dismissed they were those charges were finally dismissed for her she sat for three years but they were dismissed but just that, helping that's some three of years other, in jail by the way yeah, yeah most people don't understand that and walked out yep. with nothing yeah um and jl was a public defender on that case i handled and still <laughs> handling family court aspect but you were phenomenal so and it was a long time coming that was a very but, yeah, but being able to do all to do that, and and I think one thing I like about being a public defender is I don't have to consider whether someone's going to finish paying me. I don't have to consider how much money I need to charge. I've got a case. I can pour myself into it without having to question that. And of course, there's nothing wrong with it. The system is how it is, and probably should be to some degree the way it is. But I like that I don't have to be concerned with that. You like being I can, the underdog. Well, <laughs> and, and just being able to, you, you know, like being I don't the have underdog. To, 
I don't have to sort of cuddle to one client because they're paying me more money than another one or because they are. I can just pour myself into cases however I need to and can find the time to. Well, now they don't have to pay Joe anymore, so you don't have to. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to start sending them to him. Yeah. Mm. You can have, you can have Public Defender has, what, 99 problems, but caseload's not one, right? <laughs> it is the one. The only <laughs> the major the problem. One. All right, y'all. Well, I think now we're going to move to the cross-examination portion, which, again, it's our turn to kind of interrogate y'all. But since we're running short on time, I think the one question for our listeners, because we've kind of touched on what are some issues that you want to see change, but I would like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, is assuming you weren't going to practice law, you were not a lawyer, what career path would you have chosen? And we'll start with JL. Do we have to start with me? We can start Fine with me. I would be an investment banker, something in the field of finance. I was a finance major in undergrad. Did a lot better in undergrad than in law school. <laughs> did not go to law school because um, I like math. So, I mean, may, I would do something in the field dealing with money, even though I represent people <laughs> for no money. Yeah, it would be horrible for your business. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what about you, Tyler? Three things. I would either be doing something in real estate, maybe real estate development. I may be a rock star, probably. Oh. <laughs> See that? Who doesn't want to? Yeah. I'll be a rock star or I may be in MLB <clears throat> baseball. Okay. I was real good in baseball as a kid, but I stopped playing because I started playing football. I should have kept playing baseball. Yeah, you should have kept baseball. Yeah. I probably those, those contracts are much right higher. <laughs> right. right. These are moonshots. Baseball, I love the optimism. Yeah. yeah, baseball, though, well, are guaranteed. Shoot, yeah. shoot for the moon, right? Rock star, MLB, or real estate. I can right. get on board. Gerald, what about you? Had time to think. Uh, well, Tyler stole two th- two ways that I was going to say mine because I kind of have a, a three part thing too. I grew up always wanting to be the first woman to play in the majors. I wanted to be the first woman to play major league baseball. Um, that's what I always wanted to do. I had a lot of injuries. Of course, that was a long shot to begin with. Um, and before I was a public defender, I was a private investigator. I really enjoyed that. I miss a lot of things about that, but. I still get to work with them and do some aspects, but I really enjoy that and wouldn't mind going back to it. Um, and I always really wanted to be a, a bag, like a bag girl at grocery stores. That's like my dream is to retire somewhere nice and be a bag like girl. at a grocery store. Like that, bad that, things. That, I would that, offer that to do the list it. Of weirdest jobs. <laughs> I go to the grocery store. I offer to do it for them. I can't tell you what about my paper plastic OCD brain likes it. Right. I love bagging groceries, so I would do that. So <laughs> as we as we wrap up, I'd like to point out, Amber, that last week we asked Dane for his favorite case. Ball time, and he gave us four. <laughs> this week, we asked two criminal attorneys their favorite jobs, and they gave us three each. I just want to say, it must be a criminal defense thing. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You get used to having backups. Well, we thank our guest today. Um, you can find Tyler, ba- Tyler Bailey, excuse me, on Twitter at Tyler D. Bailey Esquire ESQ. What'd you say? Get it together. All right, I'm going to try this again. <laughs> you can time. find Tyler Bailey at Tyler D. Bailey ESQ on Twitter, on Facebook, Tyler Bailey at the Bailey and the Bailey Law Firm, and on Instagram at Tyler D. Bailey, where he's going to be posting pictures of his uh, child baseball photos. Yeah, there you go. Right. Baseball, <laughs> dogs, you know, That's right. Um, you can find Joe Leventis on Facebook at the Leventis Law Firm, LLC. 
And you can find J.L. Gilry at the Lexington County Public Defender's, Defender's Office. Yep. That's, that's where my entire presence is. <laughs> or the jail. Right. And yeah. last week, uh, we had to apologize to transactional lawyers for Dane insulting them. This week, we're going to apologize to the citizens of Edgefield, Batesburg, Leesville, Lexington. Saluda McCormick. Saluda the prosecutor's office. For, the far west of Lexington. For Dane insulting them. So we apologize to them this Salt to the earth, people. Um, <laughs> Dave, it's too late. Don't, don't start apologizing now. Um, remember, you can always follow us at SC Law Pod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can follow me at Joseph P. Bias. You can follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer. And you can follow Amber at Red Judicata. So for our guests, JL, Tyler, and Joe, for Amber, for Dane, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.